this is Melissa Hale Spencer here today with Christina Charles, who is a poet and an activist. They may sound like disparate ends of a spectrum, but I think we will see how really they're interrelated. And we're going to start with Christina reading a poem. Okay, hi. So I'm going to start off with uh, re-education. I want to re-educate myself from the higher-level intoxicants bombarding my brain. I've been bamboozled into bejeweled deception. In youth, I was fed mythology, misled by a steady diet of history. Eurocentricity turned into Afrocentricity, which perpetuated mental idiosyncrasy. Ironic, really. I tried to find myself and got lost trying to find myself. So I must segregate myself in order to find the center's eye of self. So I want to re-educate my mind, cleanse its fundamental depths. I want to regurgitate the regurgitated regurgitations of the regurgitated nonsensical lies, repenetrating my cranium and purging it of all the shit that's inside. Illogically, I will logically deconstruct what's been constructed as pure logic to balance out the equation, mathematically reduce societal creation, astronomically ascend to nirvana, and with the proud humility of a Buddha, restore what was once my glorious mind. Very powerful. That's the second time I've heard that poem, and I heard different things in it this time. I almost feel like we ought to have you read it again, because the words come in such a rush, they kind of crescendo up, and then it levels out to this nirvana state. The The rhythm even changes. So tell us about writing that poem. What what led you to write that? Well, <laughs> this particular piece kind of it comes from a, a book that I published in 2009, um, Ranting of a Mad Black Woman. And that was a, it's an interesting title, but it's also reflective of a, a state of mind that it was in. Personally, I was struggling through certain things, but also I kind of wanted to what I call deconstruct the concept of madness, right? Because it has different connotations. You think mad, I'm angry mad, mentally ill. And there's this also perception of the angry, mad black woman. So I was playing around with those terms and playing around with that. And this book is my was my third book. And where I was coming with that is that I felt that I had kind of evolved a lot to get to that point. And my style of poetry is usually like, I'm very conscious of rhythm and flow and the way that words kind of interplay with each other. And sometimes I like to almost re-change the way a word means. Like I think, I think we were, I remember we had a discussion before we were talking about, um, and we were talking about this poem and you, the way that I use segregate. Yeah. Segregate. So you think of segregation in, um, you know, like the negative, like segregation, but sometimes, you know, segregate to put yourself aside in a way that I used it in that sense. not You just, turned it on its head it's from right. our usual reading of the word, yeah. Right, and I, I wanted to take that and say, you know, not just in a negative, but as a way of kind of, just the way like you think about going to the state of nirvana or Buddha or reincarnation, you sort of have to go within yourself to kind of segregate, to separate yourself from all of, the craziness of society and sometimes you come back with a different perspective so I like to play around with words and I do that through this poem and different poems that I have in the book um, where I take the meaning of words and try to flip them on their head a little bit you do and with you 
you're very playful with the word regurgitate. Yeah, there. I like it. Almost has like a rap sound to it, uh-huh. the, the way it spins like that. And that's kind of your, the turning point in your poem because you're starting out with this idea of the Eurocentricity and Africcentricity, and then you spin us. And come out in this nice place on the other side. Yeah, and you know, regurgitate. What well, some words I I really just like, and I like the sound of the word regurgitate. <laughs> when I first learned, I was like, oh, that's kind of I like the way like that flows. But yeah, I like to I use repetition because poetry to me and repetition is so wonderful together and. But they have a meaning. It's like you're repeating it, but you're not actually saying the same thing. You're actually saying something distinctive, but you are, but I'm repeating it, using the yeah. same word to say something distinctive each time I'm saying it. So that's kind of how I used it. And yeah, and poems, most of my poems, a lot of them actually, I go through these mini journeys. And so, you know, I start off the, the open with, I want to re-educate and talking about where I was as a person, you know, where I started off, where, you know, my schooling, my education, not really knowing much about African history, cultural history. Tell us a little about your schooling. Okay, yeah. So I am a straight Catholic schoolgirl my entire life. Um, in Queens, was in it? Queens, yeah. that's right. Born in Queens, went to Catholic school from pre-K to college. And it's funny because I, I wasn't extremely Catholic. It wasn't like my parents were like, you were, it's just that it was good education. Good education. Right. And it was the best place to go. So I went to Catholic school, went to Catholic college, but there was a turning point, I think for me in um, high school, probably my senior year of high school, I came across two books, both written by Alex Haley. So the first one was Roots, his seminal book. And that piece really just kind of blew my mind. This was tracing his family's history all the way back to Africa. Right. And, and but it was but it's also the story of black people, right? In the, the the black diaspora, you know, the black people from Africa living in the whether West Indies or in the Americas and all of that. And but it was just so raw. You know, when you when slavery was broached in school, it was not even really broached. It's like, it happened. Bad. That's about it. But you get this unbelievable journey and perspective. And something in that book that always, as a writer, that struck me about what Alex did, which I thought was brilliant, is that the book is about almost 800 pages. The first 400 pages of that book are Kunta Kinte's story. You literally, from birth to teenage, to him on the slave slip, him in America's. But then... It transitions from Kunta's story to Kesey's story when she gets sold from her father. And then you never hear about him again. And I remember reading them thinking, what happens to Kunta? Like, I was so agitated. Like, what happened? I've been reading 400 pages. And then I thought about something about the brilliance of that. I said, ah, well, that's what that would have felt like a little bit, right? If you got sold away from your family. Just the end. That's the end. Yeah. You know, when you read slave narratives, what was the thing that they were most terrified of? It wasn't the whip, which, of course, that visceral image of bodies being whipped. No, it was being sold from your family. And so just from an education point of view, what what should our curriculum have? What what should kids be learning about slavery? You know, what would make it 
better rather than having someone like you who explores on your own and found this book that meant so much to you and kind of changed your whole perception of history what like what should be in the curriculum it should be in it should be discussed it should be discussed in detail just like the what happens to native americans it's really important especially looking at where we are right now as a nation and, and you're not just here but you see europe all these recyclings of all these things coming back and why is this happening? It's happening because there's obviously lots of inequity, lots of ignorance, but there's also people not understanding what that history is, being confused by it. You know, even, you know, and you not only see the rise in racism, but anti-Semitism. Like, when I was in college, I took a class on the Holocaust, and I studied literature and books, and that was a, another eye-opening experience for me. And then you find out that, I don't know, a good 30 40% like only about 40% of millennials even know about the the full extent of the holocaust you know what i mean so that's that that's a failure to me on that part and not knowing that because it it i think it makes us more and we have to face the ugliness in our past like when people say like, oh we've never been this way i'm like what the heck are you talking about we so much like are you kidding me what you well, so do you have like certain books you'd recommend for people besides Alex Haley, certain ones that were pivotal for you that helped shape your idea of this history? Oh, there are just so many different things. I mean, it's, I mean, from a literature perspective, in terms of actually having the literary experience of slavery, for me, Roots is the, the best as far as a novel. And I like it even more than certain historical stuff. Not that that's, that's important. As a matter of fact, you should go and supplement and read historical stuff. But the reason why I like it is because it makes history real, and I love things that make history real. But that book, and the second book I was going to say, I forgot before I forget about that had an impact, was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that also had a profound impact as well because, A, it gave me a different understanding of Malcolm X than what you conventionally understand him to be. He's a much more complicated, complex person, and you understood a little bit where he came from. But it also, it, again, it's also a history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the history of, you know, certain black... Civil rights movement. Civil rights movement, yeah. black American movement in the you know early 20th, mid-20th century. So that's another historical lesson that I learned. And those two things kind of sent me on a journey and started to learn and quest. But sometimes you go on journeys, too, especially when you're going on self-educational journeys, you end up in weird places sometimes. Or And that's what I mean, like, what I said, I got lost trying to find myself. You have people, you know, like, oh, let's go back to Africa. I'm thinking, is that really a good idea? <laughs> like, so, I mean, we tried that. That didn't actually work. But, you know, like, but there's also a, na- a naiveness about uh, with that because it's a sense, like, and also not taking into account African people and whether, you know, like they're actually people there with their culture and land and you can't just go there. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, I don't want to say silliness, but just these ideas that are what I consider unrefined. Like just when you first experience stuff, it's like, yeah, where dashiki Afro, whatever. And I, I didn't have an Afro, didn't wear dashikis, but that kind of sense of this is what it's all about. But in fact, you find that history is much more complicated and richer and people's stories are much more richer. So that's where I said, okay, let me do this again and let me look into things in a more deeper fashion. So what led you to poetry? Poetry, um, well, it was during that journey writing that I actually started writing poetry, which was an odd thing for me because... 
up until that point, I never wrote poetry at all. Didn't even like it. Poetry for me was Shakespearean sonnets, which were good, but that's just old and dated. Um, but I read that book, and I read another book um, from Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye, which is one of my favorite books. It's a disturbing book, but it's a, it's a powerful book. I read that piece. I had all this stuff in my head. And then I wrote my first poem, Cry My Beloved Africa, and I wrote that piece. And I just was in my living room, and the words just came to me, and I thought, oh, that's weird. And then I started writing more and more, and I thought, oh, wow, okay. And and initially when I wrote poetry, I kept it like in a little notebook, but I didn't show anybody. I think I didn't So do you write, you don't type it, you write it out by hand. I write by hand, and then I type it. Okay. I find that... um, just in, uh, yeah, as a writer, this is how I, I have this kind of process. I like to write by hand first. I feel that I write better. I don't know why. I just do. It feels like more organic. I like to scratch things out. I like to play around with it. And then when I put it, because to me, when I put things on the page, it's kind of finalized. I mean, I'll change it. Sometimes I'll fix things even when I'm doing it. But the creative process, I do it like writing it. Well, a lot of modern poetry exists for the page. And like you mentioned, Shakespeare, he existed for the stage. And I feel like your poetry, what I've heard you read, and maybe it's the way you read it, it's really oral. I mean, it's not, I'm sure it's fine on the page, but I mean, it seems like speaking it is part of the force of it. Yes, that to me is very important. And once I started writing poetry, I kind of went, on this journey, so you start reading about other poets, right? You know, for me, Maya Angelou was a big influence, you know, Sonia Sanchez, um, Audre Lorde. But then I also started going to this place when I was in college. Um, I went to this place called the New Yorkians Poetry Cafe, and it that's in the East Village in Manhattan. And I it was an incredible experience for me because they do um, what they call slam poetry, which Def, um, Def Jam used to do this quite a bit, like. They, with um, Russell Simmons. He, yeah, there was actually a whole HBO series of that. And slam poetry is all about performance. It's, it's an oral, performative type of poetry. But for me, it was an experience I'd never had before with poetry. It was like these people were live and bombastic and just, it was like, wow. And then, you know, there's hundreds of people like sitting there listening to that, you know, coming to the New York, especially on Friday, they had slam poetry nights. And so that had a huge impact on me and how I wrote because I always think about the sound of pieces when I write. And I later on even had the opportunity to judge uh, po- poetry competitions, which, which was cool. You know, you, you know, try to be fair. I don't want to be like, I'm not going to raise a one on somebody. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a one to ten yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And how many, was it a single judge or a panel of judges? It, it was, it, yeah, it was several judges. I mean, it yeah. was totally, inf- it, this was on... Um, Wednesday and slam poetry nights were on Fridays and Wednesdays was like more open mic and so you'd have judges and it was informal it was like hey you want to be just yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> me and this um friend of mine and you know there were some great people there were some not so great um <laughs> but it was it was fun you know like I said try to be diplomatic like there was one poem I had to give him a six but I was like I'm not going to give him a three. I just can't do it. I just <laughs> well, a poet's ego is usually very sensitive. I mean, so. I'm an artist myself. I can't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to be diplomatic here. So, um, but yeah, it was a wonderful experience and I, that had a real impact on me. So when I write. Because it gave you a place to have 
people respond to your poetry. To respond, but also just, just it just taught me about even writing, even though I'm listening to it, right? It taught me the power of rhythm. It taught me the power of repetition, of movement, of performance in it. Because I do think, yes, poetry is great on a page. It's wonderful. But it's an art form that's exists for thousands of years as an oral art form, right? And so my job as a performer, as a poet, is to move you. Right? And I like to move you in two different places. I mean... The first part to move you is emotionally, which is what I think art should do. It should move you in an emotional space. And then when you have time to think about it again, then move you in an intellectual space. right? So first time you hear something, you're like, wow, that was really great. And you may not have picked up everything that you heard with the poem or what the piece said, but you, th- you felt good. It, it, it touched you in a certain way. And then you hear it again, or you see it, or you read it, and you start thinking, oh, wow, she's, this person's saying so many different things, and I want to unpack this more. Yeah, hearing your poem a second time, I got a lot more out of it. And I think, too, hearing it, you mentioned Toni Morrison, and I listen to books a lot, like when I'm in my car, and I love, she reads her own books on disc, and it's like that novel you mentioned, it's like poetry, the way she writes. And when you hear her voice saying those words, it just hits you in a whole different way than if you're sitting yourself and reading it silently. Mm -hmm. You know, the words, they reach you in a different way. And I don't know if it's um, because the spoken word hits a different part of your brain or Mm -hmm. what it is, but it really, it has a different power. But you had mentioned this is your third book. Tell us a little about your first two books. What were they called, and how are they different, or are they from your... Yeah, so my first, my very first book was um, Badass Poetry. That's literally what I called it, <laughs> with two A's, okay? Badass. Bad. I'm badass. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, that was... The title came, the inspiration for that title came, I watched this documentary on these black exploitation films in the 1970s, and the documentary is called Badass Cinema. And I thought, oh, okay, that's kind of, kind of like that. And um, But I also like the 70s, too, because I thought this, the 60s and the 70s was a fantastic part for black arts. And the fact that we had this whole cinematic movement, which unfortunately, you know, kind of went the way of the dodos. But... <laughs> But at the, but it was great, you know. It was the sense of pride in in blackness and and, and that bombastity. So I I took that essence and I had that. And again, I had poems like the drum and cry my book of the Africa and woman. And they were very rhythm centric. The poems, um, but I also feel like they were more traditional. I, to me, when I look at that book, I, I see very much an homage to Dr. Angelou and her style. And so, and that, the poems from that book, I published that in 2006. The poems range, you're coming from my first piece, Crime About Love at Africa, from 2000 when I wrote my first poem to all the way to that point. So it's a range of styles. The second book I wrote, In My Naked Flesh, is a totally different. In My Naked Flesh? Yes, In My Naked Flesh. Very different title than. Bad. Badass. <laughs> now I'm naked. No. <laughs> no, but it's like much no. more vulnerable and yes. kind of. Um, and it meant it was meant to be. And the style <clears throat> is very different from any from that book, and very different from this. And it was. In, I wrote it. They were mostly short pieces. Um, 
some of them were only four or five lines even. And it was, it's one of the only books that I can say is truly emotional in the sense that it was coming from my personal experiences, romantic, my state of mind. But they were short little pieces, um, poems that I am very fond of, like short, small little pieces, poems that I wrote. But yes, it was in my naked flesh. And it, that's what I meant that to be, me at my most vulnerable you know, and I had political, cultural things in there, but not that much, right? And then you come to this piece in 2009, which is The Ranting of a Mad Black Woman. And I feel like it has, to me, it's my favorite um, out of the three. Although I love mine, I like them all, right? They like your children. You like all of them. <laughs> Even the little ugly ones, you like them too. <laughs> but in my naked flesh, I, but in ranting, I like more because I feel. Um, I kind of refine my my rhythm pieces. I can write more with, I have a little bit more, you know, pizam, like more power in the way that I use words. Um, I have even longer pieces, more epic pieces that are really performance driven in that. And then I have some smaller quiet pieces too, right? Because I, I'm, and it's a, both personal and very political and very historical. So you have pieces where I'm literally um, like you know, walking in blood, like that poem that sounds heavy. Mm. Um, and it is a very performance-driven piece. I don't know if you'd like me to go into it. Yeah, well, the thing, this is a perfect segue because personal, historical, political is what you said. And this segues into castina as an activist Mm -hmm. because um i'll just let people know that i met castina because there was a group that i had never heard of called altamont main street usa Mm -hmm. and castina had organized a protest with this group soon after trump took office downtown albany in front of the o'brien building and there she was. <laughs> and I just thought, what a fascinating person. So how 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 did you become that, Christina, the one that's leading a protest? Well, it's like I said, it, it's kind of an interesting journey. I mean, on the surface, I would say that I wouldn't find a, a natural connection between poetry, my poetry, and my activism. Like, this is just like, yeah, that's not where that went. But what you can gather from my pieces is this intense interest in political activism and historical injustice, but I had never taken that step to do it. Part of it is just like, you know, outside of certain things, I tend to be a little bit quiet, you know, to myself person. And the idea of me leading a protest would be kind of like, what the, you know, so, but the circumstances that were happening kind of moved me a certain way, you know, after the election, I'm thinking, wow, okay, where do we go from here? And I started signing petitions, which I think I said one time, I made a joke one time, petitions are like the gateway drug to activism. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I hadn't heard that joke. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I started signing um, petitions and through moveon.org. And then right before the inauguration, MoveOn had said, you know, there are these meeting, these gatherings locally to talk about, you know, the, the administration, what we're going to do. And there was a, the closest one to my house was in Altamont. So I went there and there was an individual who was leading in his home and he was doing it. 
And it was like, okay. And we decided on Altamont Main Street because he lived in Altamont at the time on Main Street and thought, USA, like, yeah, that sounds real patriotic. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Altamont Main Street, USA. Here we go. So we, that's how we came up with the name. And I wasn't leading or organizing anything. Like um, the following, I think the week after inauguration was the Women's March, and I didn't go to that because I was very, like, I don't know. But then I felt like, wow, this was like kind of a big deal. I, I should have went to it. So the protest, my very, very first protest I went to took place on January 24th, and it was at the Leo O'Brien building, and it was another person put together by Move On, and it was part of Move On's um, Resist Trump Tuesdays. Event. So every Tuesdays for the first 100 days of his um, inauguration, they were going to do a pro- protest, right? And so I went to one of those, and it was okay. It didn't end actually all that great. A lot of people dispersed. It was really weird. But it was great for me because it taught me I could do this, right? What I had been afraid of, I could do. And as I always like, and I do want to always add this caveat, um, I do think we're very fortunate up here in the community in the sense that we have not really experienced so much ugliness because, I mean, protesting and those things in many places in this country, in the world, this is very dangerous. There's a lot of, you put, you put a lot on the line, so it's not an easy thing to do. Um, it's very important to know this. But I will say up here, I've been very fortunate that, you know, even people who disagree with you, they don't tend to take it to the negative level. And the police the departments, they're very supportive. You let them know ahead of time, they, they tend to be really supportive. So I had a good experience. And then I came up with sending a bunch of emails, and he's like, well, great. You know what? I'm not really a leading kind of person. Like, you should lead. I'm like, okay. Um, uh, all right, then. <laughs> I will do that. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'll do it. And so the very next week, you know, I went to one protest, and the very next week I organized the the first one my first protest january 31st um which was where we met when you covered that that story and that was you know an amazing experience for me and it was the experience not only doing it but it wasn't even so much about the success of protests it was something i'm saying to myself like i can take this journey you know i've kind of been going on this journey now for the better part whether i realize this or not for the better part of 16 17 18 years you know, when I first started to reawaken to the fact that, hmm, not everything that I thought was what I thought it was. You know, there's a whole history, there's a whole political movement, there are things that happened that I'm totally unaware of. And once I started going on that journey, right, and then writing, writing about it, writing poetry about it, doing that, it kind of led me to that space. And tell us about the latest incarnation, because... I missed the the second women's empowerment movement, and you are organized not only a march but this wonderful workshop learning experience, which seems to me in some ways more important than a march or holding signs because it looked like you got a really diverse group of people together um intelligent powerful, interesting people um, to teach. Mm-hmm. So tell us about organizing that and about some of your favorite or most interesting people that were part of that. Well, yeah. So after we did a women's empowerment conference um, this year, but I the year before I did, a, I led the Women's March in, in Albany because I found they weren't doing a Women's March in Albany. So I thought, oh, 
okay, I guess we'll do it. <laughs> again, I don't know what I'm doing, but we're going to do it. And that, that we had a great turnout. Well, tell us about that. Well, okay, so <clears throat> that so from when the last time, the first March, I had spent that better part of the year um, not necessarily organizing marches and rallies, but attending places, connecting, networking with local activists in the in the region. And in I would say somewhere in April, I met a woman by the name of um, Emily Marinchek, and she was organizing the tax march. I had actually wanted to do that myself, but she had got the better location. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to close up whatever event I'm trying to do, and I'm going to partner with her. And I met her, and we kept up correspondence. And then later on in the year, I spoke with her and Edith Simpson, who's my longtime ally, ally and you know co-founder of Women's Empowerment Conference. She's, she's been with me from Altamont Main Street on, so we're great. And I talked to her and Amy and all these other people and said, hey, you think we could do like a women's march? Are we totally crazy? And we thought, all right, let's do it. <laughs> so tell, why do women need empowerment? What, what is it that you, if you had the ideal world, you know, what are you pushing for? And is there any kind of parallel literature that we can tap into the way you did to Alex Haley's roots? Is there any? Well, I don't know what to recommend specific, but women's empowerment, I, there's a little what I call play on words here because we also go by we in that acronym, and it means something to me when I said that. So W-E, we. We, we mm-hmm. right. So it's women's empowerment, but it's also we, us, the community, people. And so that's not also exclusive to women, right? But why do I want to talk about women's empowerment, and why did I want to do a conference in a, in a conjunction to the march? So we wanted to do a march after the successful one. We talked, got together a couple of months. But I thought marches are great. They're great energy birth, you know, keeps the energy going, keeps the, like, yeah, get on the street. That, that's important. Because people feel charged up and committed, or they feel like they belong, or they... All of those things. Okay. They feel charged up, they feel committed, they feel... <clears throat> it's, it's all, it, as a matter of fact, with these women's marches, it's like a celebration, in a way. Like, we are here, we are out here, it's cold, it's winter, we don't care, we're women... They, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the place where I met you, it was so cold, I couldn't even write. Yeah, yeah so it's something it's, about overcoming the odds like, that makes we, you feel good. Yeah, you know, we're, we're <clears> out here, we're doing this, right? And so so it, and that has a and that's a good pulsing beating heart like that's that's a good part but at the same token my thinking was we need to reflect what why we're here like what brought us to this space right not only just to activists but what what's in our country right that brought us to the place that we're here because unlike most people trump to me is not an anomaly anomaly that's what i mean to say he's the to me, logical conclusion to where we had been going, if you look at, if you paid attention to the tea leaves in the country, especially if you looked at what was happening with the conservative movement, what the but rhetoric... But people that, weren't paying attention. No, they so weren't. It was sort of the underbelly. Right. And it just... They're not paying attention, you know, the, the stuff that was. I, one of my professors, um, I had, and I took a, I went to school back, I went back to school briefly in uh, 2013, and I took some classes on African culture, African American literature, history, and I had one of my doctors. Um, he's Dr. Kendi. He actually came up with um, uh, a book recently, marked from the beginning, and it, which is a, a book, national book, got a national book awards for that. But he he wrote an article I, I saw, and he was talking about what we don't pay attention to, and the fact that we, the way that we look at history is that it's always going in one direction right like we're kind of this upward trajectory like 
think about recent American history, you know, civil rights movement, women's movement, gay liberation movement, we've been wow, wow. But that we weren't paying attention that actually, yes, those things are true. We are making progress. But there's another line, another trajectory that was also making progress, which is the religious right movement, the religious... And those things were happening parallel. Like, they're happening at the same time. And they're not contradiction. Like, what we see as a reversal is not actually a reversal. It's the success of one trajectory that we weren't paying attention to that was happening in parallel to the other one. The religious fundamentalist movement got huge steam in the 70s and when it you know, hijacked the Republican Party and in the 80s with Ronald Reagan and those merchants. Those things were actually building and they were making lots of successes. But we seem to think that because we had these other successes that somehow, which we felt culminated in Obama. Well, I didn't feel that, but lots of people felt, right? Obama, post-racial society, right, that we had finally made it. And then now we were going to have another epic historical moment, the first woman president, right? And then it was like, what? How did we get here? We went backwards. It's like, well, no, actually, there's this movement that's been happening parallel the whole time. And also, too, with a lot of progressive movements like women's suffrage, there's a huge step forward, as there was, you know, with the original suffragists, and then you have little step backwards or just standing still until you take another step forward. Mm-hmm. So it, it isn't ever a straight trajectory. But I see what you're saying. This professor has this idea there's a parallel course. Right. That one side isn't noticing that the other's there. And the reason for that, and, and this goes into where I ended up with doing the conference, is because of, to me, I, what I consider a, a fallacy, a phallic notion, um, not, oh, God, a false <laughs> Scratch that one off, right? <laughs> A false notion of where a lot of activists is like getting to the promised land. And what I mean by that is like we're going to build to this place and we're going to get to this perfect place. And that to me is a false notion and it's a, and it's a bad one. And the reason why I say it's a bad one because it makes you think that it, it builds into that building up when in actuality activism never ends. Right. Just like you're never going to stop promoting what's important to you. Well, the people that are you're working against are also not going to stop promoting. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you are a so-called pro-life advocate. Right. Well, you're always going to fight for that. You're not going to stop. Like, Why would you stop? Right. Just like if you are pro-choice, you're not going to stop. You're going to keep pushing. And so the idea that we can get to a place and then we'll get there is is to me a false notion. Like activism is just like it's just a life experience. It's like another great parallel is like, let's say you work out, right? It's like, I'm going to lose weight. Go to the gym. I eat. I get fit. I lose a lot of weight. Well, if you stop working out and you stop eating right, what's going to happen? All of that's going to come back, right? So activism for you is like breathing. It's like something you have to keep doing exactly. in order to... Exactly. Just, to sustain itself. Yeah. Not You don't reach a point. You have to continue it. And so that goes why I wanted to do the conference. And I partnered with um, Edith Simpson and Sarah Kochu, the other two co-founders. And Sarah works for the Healthcare Education Project. And I met her when I did, did the first Women's March that I organized. Um, and we decided like we wanted to do something a bit bigger you know, that had more sustenance to it and not just a march. So we came up with this conference and we had this amazing group of women that we had brought together, diverse women that were representative of our values, that were as inclusive as possible, although we did have some men as well. Um, And it was great. And what we did, we started off, the first part was the morning plenary, which was open to 
to everyone. The whole event was free, but it, it could, we had the max capacity to have lots of people for that. And we had the speakers come, and they did probably for like two hours, two and a half hours. Speakers, we had music, performance. Um, and just look, to give people an idea, like you had a, a woman who had organized a protest in the DMZ in Korea. And right. you had a woman who had made a movie about her own heritage, which turned out to be not what she thought it was. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, just across the spectrum, fascinating yeah. perspective. Both of those women, Christine On and Lacey Schwartz, were the... Our keynote. So Christine on was in the morning. She was our keynote. She was she was introduced by Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan. She did her introduction for her, and then the and late, she's the one that organized this Korean right. Protest. So she um, women cross DMZ. So that's and she did a, a, an actual women's march in 2015 with Gloria Steinem, several other Nobel Prize laureates across the Korean demilitarized zone in 2015. And I had an opportunity to see her speak. In last year, February, I think, right shortly after I did the Women's March. And I was so moved by her as a speaker, right? Um, because I think sometimes, to me, what's moving as a speaker is not, not just a person who says things that confirm what I already knew, but also educates me on things that I did not know. It gives me a different perspective. And sort of stretches your mind. Yeah, stretches it. And she gave me a completely different understanding of the history, the history behind um, Korea and all of that. So that... I felt, and she was an emotional speaker as well. Like she, it's personal to her. So I thought, we, I need to bring her here. And so I hooked up with uh, Maud Easter, who's part of Women Against War. And she, I met her also through the Women's March. I met a lot of women through the Women's March. And she, because she was the one that organized Christine's speech. And I thought, you know, I said, I sent her a topic of this. I said, I would like Christine to come. But Christine lives all the way in Hawaii. So I didn't think it was just pertinent just to have her speak for 10 minutes. I'm going to fly all the way there. I mean, I mean, that's nice, but that's, you know, you got to make something worth somebody's while. So I thought we should do a workshop as well, specifically with her. And I it came up with the tiny I was, title. I was like, Finding Our Voices in Darkness, an Activist Journey for Peace. I wrote that title and I sent it to her. And I was like, Oh, that's a great title. And I was like, I want her to do it. And she's like, okay. And then she reached out to her and brought her on board. And so she was our keynote for the morning plenary we had a break and then we did the workshops and each workshop kind of came from a specific place you know wanting to address very specific issues so we had you know you know why not me you know first we march now let's run for office right and that was led by an awesome i always call her my wonder woman she's part of the the we team the committee that i put together to put on the women's march and uh, women's conference like Lisa Powell Graham, she actually worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign too. Like she's a, she's a awesome, positive, bubbly. Well, public a lot speaker. more women. They call it the Trump effect. Are running for office mm-hmm. now than had previously. And, yeah, and so she did a workshop. Um, the workshop that I led, um, our voices, our bodies, our communities, Black women taking ownership of our blackness. That to me was kind of if where I'm. In going in a more deeper sense as a tell black us, woman. Tell us about that. What? So what I wanted to do with that, and I had several panelists I had um, on on that particular event. And for me, the people, the women that I brought to that, I wanted to them to bring something special. So I had Gabrielle Say, um, who is the political director of 1199 SEIU. I had Angelica Morris, who's the executive director of the Schenectady Human Rights Commission. 
Um, and then I had um, Kim Kimley Dorsey, who's this wonderful, fabulous transgender activist. And I had them as my three panelists, and I asked them a couple of questions, and I wanted them to speak to their experience about as a black woman, but also certain issues. I mean, it's such a broad topic, but I wanted them to speak from their own personal experience on that. And I also wanted to bring a historical overview. So when I started that workshop, I passed out these handouts that had kind of a historical fact about this one woman who was referred to, her name was Sarah Bartman, but she was referred to as the Hottentot Venus. She came from South Africa, and she was lived in the 19th century, and she was in Europe, and she was displayed while she was alive. It was sort of like a circus freak act because she had a, a specifically huge buttocks. And so, I mean, you would see, you know, drawings of people like, oh, what, what roast beef, you know, like just the most mm-hmm. degrading kind of things. And then when she died, she was dissected, and it was like she was just like considered a freak. So I started with that because I want people to understand when, when you're speaking about ownership of bodies, especially as a black person, as a black woman, there's a very specific meaning. Okay, um, taking ownership. So I started off to give that unfortunate history, right? And then I had these women speak to it, and we had questions and answers. But then I closed out on a poem, which I had everyone in the audience partic- speak lines. I had three women start off. I started it, and then I had all Is it of one us. of your poems? No, my Angelou. Oh. Um, phenomenal woman. Ah. And because I wanted everyone to feel, and that, again, it goes to my theme, how I always do things, even in my poems. So I will start you off with something like, whoa, right? Sometimes even really unpleasant and untroubling. But I don't like to leave people in that space. I don't want you to, I want you to realize that there's hope always, you know, even in dark, ugly places, because that's also important to activism. So your seminar was like that. You started out with this very ugly example of a woman being exploited and displayed, and then you ended with a shared poem. That's nice. Yeah. And I think we're out of time, so we're going to do the same thing. We're going to end with one of your poems, and we're going to feel good. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I'm going to start. Yeah, so this is a short piece. This is a real short piece. Um, It's called Strength. Strength is not the force of an iron will or the inability to feel the horrors of pain. Strength is the ability to look at all the malicious cruelty of life and with nothing over the horizon, still have the audacity to hope.